Good morning, church. Please stand uh, in honor of God's word. Today's scripture is James 1, 5 through 8. Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting, for the doubter is like the surging sea, driven and tossed by the wind. That person, person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded and unstable in all his ways. This is the word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. kids besides Jesus, and James is actually one of them. And James didn't always believe that Jesus was who Jesus claimed to be. In fact, he's had quite a journey. And so this morning, before we jump into his letter, what we're going to do is we're actually going to look at basically James' kind of faith story, right? We love testimonies here at SCC, and so we're going to look at James' testimony. So I'm going to run through this pretty quick. We're going to start in the book of Mark. And in this book, they do a phenomenal job at uh, recording the ministry of Jesus. It was all about the performance. It was about uh, everything that Jesus did, his miracles. Uh, They wanted to show his power. They wanted to show uh, how uh, effective he was. And so in the book of Mark, they record his ministry in great detail. So Jesus is teaching, he's healing, he's performing miracles, he's driving out demons. Jesus is drawing large crowds to uh, himself wherever he goes. And the first time that uh, we really see this is in Mark chapter 3 and verse 20. It says that Jesus entered a house and the crowd gathered again so that they were not even able to eat. And when his family heard this, they set out to refrain him because they said, he is out of his mind. So Jesus has such a large crowd, these crowds are coming, and they are impressing on him wherever he goes. He literally can't eat. There are people everywhere, and his family is concerned. In the Greek, it says that they came to take charge or take custody of him, right? They think he's going crazy. He's burning the candle at both ends. I think for most of us, if we had a brother or a son who was claiming to be God, we'd probably be concerned for him, too. And a few verses later, we see that Jesus has caused such a stir that scribes and religious leaders have actually come from Jerusalem. They get into a conversation and a debate with Jesus, and the crowds continue to gather. 
And in Mark 3.31, it says that his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him and told him, look, your mother, your brothers, your sisters, they're outside asking for you. And he replied to them, who are my mother and my brothers? Looking at those sitting in a circle around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother, my sister, and my mother. And so Jesus makes this startling comment that spiritual relationships are stronger than natural relationships. And in Jewish culture, family was so highly valued, this was kind of a slap in the face. His family shows up and he asks the question, who are they? A few chapters later, in Mark chapter six, Jesus actually goes to his hometown in Nazareth. Starting in verse one, it says, he left there and came to his hometown and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue and many who feared him were astonished. Where did this man get these things, they said? What is the wisdom that has been given to him and how are these miracles performed by his hands? Isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas and Simon? And aren't these his sisters here with us? So they were offended by him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his household. He goes back to the place where he grew up, where people knew who he is, who he was, and they're like, there's no way this guy is God. I grew up with him. Isn't that the carpenter? Isn't that Mary's son? Not Joseph's son. They were stating he's an illegitimate kid. We know who you are. There's no way you're God. His family was a part of this. And in John chapter 7, we actually see Jesus' brothers mock him. John 7 verse 1, it says, Jesus traveled in Galilee since he did not want to travel in Judea because Jews were trying to kill him. The Jewish festival of shelters was near, and so his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples can see your works that you were doing. For no one does anything in secret while he is seeking public recognition. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers believed him. Now the festival of shelters, this was a festival that would take place and it was in honor of uh, Israel's journey in the wilderness. And so they would set up uh, basically an encampment where they would build housing out of sticks and branches and they would camp out to honor uh, and, and look back to the time that they spent in the wilderness after leaving Egypt. And so there was massive crowds. People would come from all over the region. They would come to celebrate. And his brothers are like, you wanna get big? Go there. You think you're something special here in this little small town? No, go there. Preach there. Do your miracles there. Grow a bigger following there. They're mocking him. Eventually, Jesus does go big. He goes public, he goes big time and starts teaching in larger cities. He is eventually arrested and crucified for claiming to be God and Jesus is killed for doing the very thing that James mocks and rebukes his brother for doing. But after raising from the dead, Jesus visits several people before he returns to heaven and we see a list of these people in 1 Corinthians 15. It says, after being raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, he appeared to Peter and then the 12. And then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. And then he appeared to James 
and then to all the apostles. And so Jesus raises from the dead, and one of the people he spends some time with is his brother James. Now, if I had a brother who claimed to be God, I probably wouldn't believe them. And then if they died and rose from the dead, I might be more willing to believe them. And we see this happen in the life of James. And so after Jesus has visited all these people, he uh, leaves, he ascends to heaven, and we see James join the church in Acts chapter 1 and verse 12. It says, then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, and when they arrived, they went to a room upstairs where they were staying. They were all continually united in prayer, along with women, including mother, the Mary of Jesus, and his brothers. You see, the resurrection changed things for James. The resurrection changed his entire family. And as we continue with James' story, we see in Acts 15 that there's a disagreement that happens in the church. And so people are gathering in Jerusalem to sit under what's called the Jerusalem Council. And so folks get up and they're sharing what they have to share. And when everybody's done, James stands up and basically gives his verdict and says, no, 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 this is how we're going to do things. In Galatians 2.9, Paul, who writes so much of the New Testament, writes that James is considered a pillar of the church alongside of Peter and John. And so throughout the Bible, we've seen James' view of Jesus change. He went from, that's just my brother, to I am concerned for my brother, to mocking his brother, rebuking his brother, doubting his brother. And then the death, burial, and resurrection take place, and James becomes a believer, not in his brother, but in his savior. And he goes on to become a pastor and a major leader. And in the year AD 62, James was killed for his faith in Jesus. He was thrown from the top of the temple 177 feet to the ground. Now, the reason that I'm walking through this with you right now is because James has literally viewed Jesus through every lens that you can. No matter what lens you're looking at Jesus through, James has been there, and that's why this letter is so powerful. He brings a perspective that is definitely unique due to his relationship with Jesus. And so when James says, I am a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, it's been a journey for him to get there. Now, James goes on to share who he's writing to, right? Directly after this, I'm a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. He goes on to say, I'm writing to the 12 tribes dispersed. He's writing to Jewish Christians that have been dispersed because of persecution. In the book of Acts, the very beginning of Acts, we see Jesus talking to his disciples, and he says, "Uh, you will be my witness in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And a couple chapters after that, we learn of a man named Stephen, Stephen was arrested and he was murdered for his faith in Jesus. And in Acts chapter eight, we see Saul begin his persecution of the church in Jerusalem and that drove Christians out into the world. So James, a pastor in Jerusalem, is writing to believers that have scattered. This is the background for this letter. So we're going to pick up in James chapter 1, verse 2. It says, Consider it all great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know the testing of your faith produces endurance. 
And let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. James literally opens the letter saying, my brother is God, and when you suffer, you should smile. What? That's baffling. That's baffling. Because we are so obsessed with comfort and convenience and avoiding pain at all costs. James is saying, you know what? Trials produce in you what nothing else can, perseverance. Perseverance. Because when we put comfort above all things, it comes at the cost of maturity. You ever spend time around a kid whose parents never say no to them? It's a real treat right? Because that kid has not developed the skills to think anything other than me, 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 give me, feed me, I want, I don't like. And they got that way because their parents decided that the discomfort of discipline was going to be a higher priority than the maturity of their child. But that's you and me too isn't it? We place comfort above maturity. How often do we get into seasons of discomfort? As James puts it, trials of various kinds. This is what we say. I don't like this. This doesn't feel good. Why am I going through this? What have I done to deserve this? There is no purpose in my pain. Because when everything is awesome, we pat ourselves on the back, don't we? And things are great. I'm killing it right now. Things are so awesome. And then when things hit the fan, we're like, God, how could you do this to me? How highly we think of ourselves and how lowly we think of God. But when we believe that there is actually purpose in the pain, we can lean into it. For the Christian, there is no such thing as unproductive pain. There's no such thing as unproductive pain. It refines us. When we experience pain, things start to boil up. What are the imperfections that start to boil up in your pain? You start to compare. Do you get bitter? What are those things that start to boil up in your pain? Because you can either stuff them down or you can repent and work through them. This is refinement. It brings forth new life. It makes you like Jesus, and this is why you rejoice in trials of various kinds. We don't rejoice because of the pain. We rejoice in the God who is with us in the pain. We rejoice in what God does in our lives through the pain. Guys, when we chase the dream of comfort in this life, it's not going to deliver. And it's not just going to deliver Worldly comfort atrophies the muscle of maturity. You want to mature? You want to grow? Get uncomfortable. The world right now does not need more cushy, atrophied, immature Christians. It needs mature Christians willing to do hard things. The world needs mature Christians willing to stand up and fight for unity. The world needs mature Christians to stand up and lovingly call their brothers and sisters in Christ to repentance. 
The world needs Christians to stand up in the gap of the oppressed and the inflicted. The world needs mature Christians willing to share the good news of Jesus with unbelievers. The world needs mature Christians to disciple those that are younger in the faith. You know, when we look back at this persecution, when we look back at the beginning of Acts, when we see what happened here, we should all be grateful for their pain because without it, we would not be here today. We are the ends of the earth. It was a persecution that drove the gospel out of Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria into the ends of the earth to Shelbyville, Indiana. There was purpose in their pain. It was for the saving of many lives. And it also created an opportunity for those believers to lean into God in a way they've never had to. So rejoice in trials of various kinds. Now, last week, Pastor Lee did a phenomenal job at framing trials, talking about our perspective when we're in trials, the difference between trials and temptations. He did such a good, good job. I would highly recommend, if you did not hear it, to go to insidescc.org, check it out. You can watch it, you can listen to it. But we're gonna pick up where he left off in James chapter one, verse five. It says, now if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting, for doubter, for the doubter is like surging sea driven and tossed by the wind. That person shouldn't expect to receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded and unstable in all of his ways. Now the definition of wisdom is that wisdom is the fitting application of knowledge. Knowledge can exist without wisdom. Wisdom cannot exist without knowledge. Knowledge is knowing the Ten Commandments. Wisdom is obeying them. Knowledge is knowing how to use a firearm. Wisdom is discerning when to use it or when to keep it holstered. See, the beautiful thing is that God wants us to ask for wisdom. And James actually says it here. James gives us a promise and a caveat. The promise, he says, ask for wisdom and it'll be given to you. The caveat, when you ask, don't doubt by being double-minded or unstable. Now, James doesn't mean you cannot doubt in your suffering. It's not what he means, and I know this because in Mark 9.19, we read a story about a man who has a son who's been possessed by a demon that causes him to have seizures. And it's been so bad, this kid has literally had seizures, he's almost fallen into fire, he's almost fallen into water, it's been devastating for their family. And so this man goes to Jesus and says, Jesus, can you heal my son? And Jesus says, if you have enough faith, I can heal your son. This man's response is, I believe, but help my unbelief. I believe, but help my unbelief. Church, when we are in seasons of trial, when we are in seasons of discomfort, when we are in the fire, it's okay to believe and to ask him to help you in your unbelief. And Jesus healed that boy. So doubting is not wrong in the trial. What James is referring to here is somebody who keeps one eye on God and one eye on the world, right? They want God to just be this like wisdom vending machine, offering them navigation uh, out of whatever situation they're in. 
Like, I want to get out of this as fast and easy as possible. God, get me there. They treat God like a spiritual GPS. Now, I remember when GPS units got really, really popular. It was 2008, 2009. You'd see these bad boys suction cup to every car window. And it was a huge step up from MapQuest. I mean, you didn't have to print anything ahead of time. You just punch in where you want to go. It would take you there. A GPS is awesome. But early GPS wasn't connected to the internet. The maps were very rarely updated, and they had no clue when things were under construction. They also lost signal all the time. So I remember being in Des Moines, Iowa, the first time I ever was using a GPS. I was in my buddy John's car. We were driving somewhere in Des Moines. I don't even remember where. We punched in where we're going, and it was great for the first five minutes. We're driving. Take a right, right? It's telling us with plenty of time. We knew exactly where we were going. Told us how much more time we had until we got to our destination. And then that GPS had a digital seizure and it was like recalculating, turn right, recalculating, turn left, recalculating, recalculating. And now all of a sudden we were across three lanes of traffic. And I don't know how Dewey did not get a ticket for a DUI. Uh, we were all over the place. Have you ever met somebody whose life is rerouting constantly? Have you ever met somebody who one minute they're doing one thing and the next minute you know they've completely switched to something totally different? They're buying and moving, changing houses all the time, changing cars all the time, picking up new hobbies, setting them down, constantly rerouting. Church, when we set the destination and we ask God to get us there, the reality is that God does not give good directions to a bad destination. He doesn't. He doesn't give good directions to a bad destination. And so if you are telling God where you are supposed to go and you expect that he is going to deliver you there and you're like, why is God not answering my prayer? Because he's not going to deliver you there. When James says, ask for wisdom, but don't be double-minded, he's saying, quit trying to use Google to tell you how to get there You need to ask God for wisdom and sit open-handed on where the destination actually is. Because sometimes getting out of the trial as fast as possible isn't what's best for you. Sometimes sitting in it for a couple of years is the best thing for you. My wife and I became foster parents in 2020. One of the worst parts of being a foster parent is you have no control over when it ends. And one of the best parts of being a foster parent is you have no control over when it ends. You want to develop some grit? Do that for three years. We just signed up. We're doing it again. Because clearly we're masochists and hate ourselves. Google tells you how to get somewhere. Wisdom asks, where is my destination? Some of us are running really efficiently in the wrong direction. Some of us are incredibly skilled, but we aren't very wise. Some of us are pursuing something with everything inside of us to gain a sliver of the world, and at the same time, we are forfeiting our souls. In the pain, in the suffering, in the trial, we should sit open-handed asking God for wisdom. 
not placing parameters on God and trying to fit him into our plans. We should ask for insight in the season that we're in, not the quickest flight out of it. In what ways are you treating God like a GPS? What destination have you set that you were expecting God to deliver you to? When those things come to mind, it's an opportunity to repent. It's an opportunity to say, I'm sorry. It's an opportunity to grow. It's an opportunity to mature. I'm going to pick up in verse 9. It says, let the brother of humble circumstances boast in his exaltation. But let the rich boast in his humiliation because he will pass away like a flower of the field. For the sun rises and together with the scorching wind dries up the grass. Its flower falls off and its beautiful appearance perishes. In the same way, the rich person will wither away while pursuing his activities. Now what I shared earlier, right? Majority of these readers, they're scattered. They're experiencing persecution. For many of them, they are poor. They have been pushed to a different country. They're learning a new culture. They're learning a new language. For some of them, they're learning a new trade or a new way to provide for themselves. And James is saying, you should be grateful that you don't have wealth because it's allowing you to rely only on his resources. You have nothing else. It's easier for you to lean into God because you have nothing else to lean on. I've had the privilege of going to Brazil four times, and I don't mean Brazil, Indiana, the country of Brazil. In the last trip that I went on, uh, our team actually went to a community that lived at a trash dump. I said that right. A community that lived at a trash dump. And the people that worked there worked amongst the trash and they built their homes out of mud and sticks and trash. And we were going and there's a ministry uh, based out of a, a larger city in the area called Carpina and they would go and they would minister to the folks at the trash dump. And one of their leaders, he's one of their pastors, uh, we were having a conversation and he said, you know what? Hope in the gospel of Jesus looks a little differently here because they have no hope in anything else. That's what James is getting at. He said, man, you got nothing. And for that, you should be grateful because it means your eyes will be solely on Jesus. And then he turns to talk. Your worldly status, it's got a heavenly exchange rate of zero. When you die, it does not matter how many people are following you on Instagram. It does not matter how much money you have in the bank account. None of it's going with you. So if that's what you are pursuing hard in this life, just know it's not going to equal anything in the next. It takes a tremendous amount of time and energy and focus to build these things. And he says, you know what? It's going to die off like grass without water. When my wife, Taylor, and I first moved here, I shared this several months ago. When we first moved here, man, we were broke. We, uh, we were real broke. We took Financial Peace University. It was the first small group we ever took here. And one of the exercises is you figure out how much money is coming in and how much is going out. And when I realized far more was going out than coming in, I was like, uh-oh. 
We did not have an emergency fund. So literally anytime anything went wrong, it was an immediate, God, I need you. Now, uh, we're not loaded now. She's an elementary school teacher and I'm a pastor. But when something goes wrong now, I know that my savings account has it. It means I'm putting my trust and faith in something other than God. Wealth numbs us to our sense of need. It creates an illusion of self-sufficiency. That's what James is getting at here. Saying, you know what? Trials have a remarkable leveling effect because it doesn't matter how much money you got. It doesn't matter how popular you are. When things get hard, we're all in the same playing field. It does not matter if you are rich, if you are poor, trials have a way of making you depend on God in a way that you wouldn't otherwise. Now, as I started thinking through and praying through what this message was supposed to look like, I was led to Genesis chapter one. When God created the light, he said it was good. When God created the sky, he said it was good. When God created the land and the water, he said it was good. When God created the trees and the plants, he said it was good. When God created the sun and the moon, he said it was good. When God created the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the creatures that crawled on the ground, he said it was good. And when God created man and woman, he said it was very good. When's the last time you took a moment in the midst of the chaos around you to realize you were not created to experience the things that you are experiencing. If everything that was created was good and we were created very good, it means that you were not created to experience fear. You weren't created to be anxious. You weren't created to be depressed. You weren't created to get cancer. You weren't created to have a heart attack. You weren't created to be addicted to a substance. You weren't created to be abused. You weren't created to be removed from your biological family. You weren't created to go to prison. You weren't created to get divorced. You weren't created to have strained relationships. You weren't created to, be, uh, to have disobedient kids or to lose a job. You weren't created to live in poverty. You weren't created to be buried in debt. You weren't created to live in fear of what friends would post about you on the internet. You weren't created to sit at a table all by yourself in the cafeteria at school. You weren't created to lose everything in a uh, natural disaster. You weren't created to suffer. You weren't created to struggle. You were not created to die. I've been working in ministry for 20 years. And the number of times that I hear people say, I have no idea how I would survive if I got that diagnosis. I have no idea what I would do if my kids were doing what theirs are. I have no idea what I would do if I got that news. Here's the deal, you weren't created to. You weren't created to. You wanna know why trials are overwhelming? Because you were not created to experience them. You wanna know why life is hard? Because it wasn't supposed to be. For some reason, we have not evolved into creatures that know how to handle when things go wrong. Because we were created 
to live in a good creation with a good creator where we found all fulfillment in him, all love in him, all encouragement in him, all provision in him, all peace in him, all contentment in him, all joy in him. And so the very things that we weren't created to experience are opportunities for us to turn our gaze to the way that things were created to be. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you experience trials of various kinds. Why? Because it's an opportunity for you to get everything from your maker. But it hurts and it doesn't feel good and I don't want to be here and this is pointless. The very thing we were created to never experience is the thing that gets used for us to connect in the way we were supposed to be connected. Total dependence on our creator. I think watching your brother get arrested, stand trial, get beaten within an inch of his life, be condemned to death, get nailed to a cross and die would be a devastating trial to walk through. James did. It was that trial that James experienced where Jesus met him, not as his brother, but as his savior. Church, whatever trial you find yourself in, Jesus wants to meet you there. He wants to meet you in it. He wants to walk through it with you. In the Old Testament, there's a story of three guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were arrested and they were thrown into a fiery furnace because they would not bow down and worship to King Nebuchadnezzar. Now it gets hot in Indiana in the summer, not quite this hot. Says they ramped up the heat to the hottest it's ever been. In go these three guys and when the, the king and his men look into the fire, what do they see? They see four men walking in the flames. Because in the trial, in the fire, in the suffering, Jesus wants to meet with you there and he wants to walk in it with you. He wants to walk in it with you. In John chapter 16, this is before Jesus is arrested. It's one of the last things he says to his disciples. He's sharing with them and he says, you know what? There's a good chance you could be killed for following me. Told them up front, the world's gonna hate you. There's a good chance you're gonna die because of your faith in me. And then he goes on to share, you know what? I'm about to leave. And when I leave, the spirit is gonna come and it's gonna be a beautiful thing for you. And in verse 33 of chapter 16, Jesus says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. You will have suffering in this world. Be courageous, because I have overcome it. And shortly after saying these words, Jesus was arrested, he was tried, he was crucified, he died, and three days later, he rose conquering sin and death. Church, have peace, you will suffer. Be courageous, because I have overcome the world. In this life, you will face trials of various kinds. 
Have you realized that you weren't created to experience them? Have you realized that you aren't prepared to navigate them? Are you too arrogant to ask for help in them? Are you too self-sufficient to allow Jesus to walk in the fire with you? Are you too focused on a destination that you have set, hoping that God will deliver you there? Or are you humble enough to ask for wisdom in the trials? Are you humble enough to allow God to set the destination instead of treating him like a GPS, taking you where you want to go? James says, are you finding your hope in your status? Are you finding your hope in your wealth? Or are you finding your hope in the only thing that will never fade a relationship with Jesus? I tell you what, life's rough. And it's gonna be rough until he comes back. So every day we have the opportunity to lean into him or we have the opportunity to do it our way. And as a 38-year-old man, I'm telling you, walking with Jesus is a far better way to do it. And hopefully, when I'm an 80-year-old man, I can say the exact same thing. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your brother James. Thank you that he wrote this letter to Christians that were hurting, that were scattered, that were persecuted, that were facing trials of various kinds. Thank you for the words that he wrote. Thank you for his real advice for real life. I want to pray for those that are in trials right now. And I pray that they would feel your presence in a way that they never have before. Pray that you provide for them in every way imaginable, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, physically, financially, relationally. I pray that you'd give them everything that they need to endure, to grow, to look more like you in this trial. And Father, I lift up those that aren't in trials right now. Praise be to you. Pray that we wouldn't take lightly the, the quote, good seasons. I pray that your spirit would convict in any of the ways that they are choosing to live life dependent on anything other than you. And Father, I pray that when we face trials of various kinds that we would find it all joy because it's an opportunity to be in communion with you, to be dependent on you, to deepen our relationship with you. I ask this in the name of Jesus, amen. It's been a privilege to be with you this morning. If you guys would, help us stack some chairs. We'll see you next week.